Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil. David Lynch's Lost Highway is a surreal neo-noir film premised on what we might call distributed identity. The main character is a man named Fred, who somehow turns into someone else, a guy named Pete. And Pete seems to know nothing about how he ended up in a locked cell on death row in place of a man who killed his wife. Fred's guard says to the warden, This is some spooky shit we got here. And that's only the beginning. Lost Highway takes us into liminal zones where everyone has a double. Or is a double. It's never very clear. Being clear is the last thing on David Lynch's mind, of course. Ever since his 1977 cult film Eraserhead, Lynch has insisted on mystifying his audiences just as much as he has refused to explain anything to them. He has always wanted people to experience his films like dreams, and moreover in the way that James Hillman wants us to experience our dreams. In The Dream and the Underworld, a book we discussed in episode 68, Hillman suggests that, quote, it is not what is said about the dream after the dream, but the experience of the dream after the dream. A dream compared with a mystery suggests that the dream is effective as long as it remains alive. The healing cults of Asclepius depended upon dreaming, but not upon dream interpretation. This implies to me that dreams can be killed by interpreters, so that the direct application of the dream as a message for the ego is probably less effective in actually changing consciousness and affecting life than is the dream still kept alive as an enigmatic image. It is better to keep the dream's black dog before your inner sense all day than to know its meaning— sexual impulses, mother complex, devilish aggression, guardian, or what have you. A living dog is better than one stuffed with concepts or substituted by an interpretation, End quote. But you know your boys are going to interpret the shit out of this movie. As sympathetic as J.F. and I are to Lynch's aversion to explanations, we insist that interpretations are necessary. Necessary, perhaps, for healing, as a psychoanalyst might have it, or necessary to become what we are. As Colin Wilson says, quote, man lives and evolves by eating significance as a child eats food, end quote. Human beings are interpreting beings, which means that if, when you watch Lost Highway, you shrug your shoulders and say, I don't know, probably doesn't mean anything, you have chosen to remain however it is you already are. I'm sure you're fine where you are, but don't you ever want to get out? If your life has been as circumscribed as mine has been for the last few months, I'm sure that you do. So come on, we're going to go for a joyride. Now dig this, our Patreon is great, and you should join it. You should also join the Weird Studies subreddit, r slash weird studies. You should write us sometime. You should interpret some art. 
You should call your mom. You should make some art. You should imminentize the eschaton. You should spread kindness and love throughout the boundless universe. You should become a primitive of an unknown culture. You should join us two weeks from now, when we'll drop our next episode on the Empress card of the tarot. But for now, you should listen to JF and me talk about Lost Highway for the next hour and ten minutes. Dick Laurent is dead. Oh, I thought you were going to actually hit me with some real news like Christian Friedland is now the finance minister of Canada. <laughs> that would be very exciting. That would have been a very different movie if <laughs> the first thing you hear <laughs> is some Canadian politics coming in through that intercom. Yeah. So how many times do you think you've seen this film? The film is Lost Highway by David Lynch. What year was that? 97 is my guess. 90, I want to say 96. Let's Google it. Lost Highway film. We didn't do our homework. Yeah, 1997. Uh, I've seen it, I think, probably at this point, seven or eight times. Mm. Yeah. You? Countless times. Countless? Countless. Uh, I would guess more than 20. Okay. All told. When it first came out, I was living in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and my best friend, Mark, and I are both like deranged David Lynch fans. I'm deranged. And yes. <laughs> that, that, that was a really good David Bowie impression. Oh, that's nothing. I can do much better than that. I'll try okay, to, I'll try to pull it out later. Yeah. No, I'll try to do it spontaneously. Funny how secrets travel on. Uh, <laughs> um, but anyway, it came out and, you know, the last David Lynch film to have come out was Firewalk With Me, which I saw in the theaters and loved. I was probably one of the very few people who loved that film when it first came out. And then Lost Highway came out after, I don't know, five or six years of nothing. And so Mark and I were really, really excited and we went to see it over and over again, about 10 times, seeing it in the theater in a big old-fashioned, somewhat Lynchian movie theater in Minneapolis. It's one of those, like, movie palaces from the old days that hadn't been torn down or turned into a cineplex. Nice. And I saw, uh, it, I, I saw it in that type of theater as well, in uh, the Bytown Cinema in Ottawa, which is an amazing place. Why did you do that? Why did you keep going back to see it again and again? Um, because I was absolutely fascinated by it and it just captivated my imagination. I mean, part of the answer to that question is why are you so into David Lynch? And I can't remember if I told this on the show, my origin story, but like the thing that kind of initiated me into not just David Lynch, but the whole idea of film as an art form was an experience I had when I was 17. Mm, yeah. And... My parents had gotten 
separated and I had moved up with my mom to Toronto and we were living in this shithole basement apartment that flooded all the time. And actually, it was a very Lynchian basement apartment. And I was looking for any excuse to get out of it. And the Bloor Street Cinema was just right down the street, like at the end of our block. So you lived on Howland or Albany? What, what, yeah, which... Howland. Yeah, that's oh, right. Oh, Jesus. I lived on Howland. Wow. Yeah. How is it that I didn't know that? What What was the street address? Ah, uh, God. I can't remember. It was basically like two blocks in. It was just across from that churchyard. You know, there's like... Uh, Holy shit. That was Kitty Corner from where I lived. Yeah. So, <laughs> so Leslie lived there, but I basically... I lived with her for a year. And then I, mo- oh, I moved... Oh, no kidding. I moved up the street to Albany. And uh, yeah, that's a crazy neighborhood. Yeah. So yeah. So you lived there. So you'd go down to the Bloor Cinema and... Uh, And it was one of those things where it's like, I don't even know what these movies are, but it was cheap. Like just hand your dollar or dollar 50 over and watch whatever is playing. And I remember it as a double feature, but in retrospect, that seems unlikely. I saw Blue Velvet and Eraserhead there. And I want to say I I saw them on the same night. Yeah, why not? Blur would do double features like that all the time. Yeah. uh, Yeah, the Blur Cinema would do that all the time, yeah. Yeah. And... It blew my whole mind because it wasn't just that these films were shocking, that they had a kind of dreamlike imagery that I'd never seen before in film, that they kind of reached deep into my soul and messed with the circuitry. It wasn't just that. It was also like I'd grown up in northern Ontario and film for me was like... I don't know. It was like movies starring Chevy Chase, you know, like spies like us, like cheap, disposable, like fun entertainment. That's what movies are. It's entertainment. I mean, I watch great movies, too, like Raiders of the Lost Ark. But I was never thinking of this as like an art form the way classical music is an art form. It didn't occur to me that you could do that with film. And watching somebody creating film that did to me what. Arnold Schoenberg's piano music did to me. I was playing Schoenberg's Opus 11 that year. So that was an expressionistic piece of music that kind of messed with my head too. The idea that you could do that with film had never occurred to me until I saw these films. So quite apart from the content of these films, which was already shocking and revelatory and deeply stirring, it was also the mere fact of being able to do something like that It expanded my vision of what art was and could be. It is seriously one of the most profound and shaping moments of my life. I remember I couldn't sleep and I just walked all around Toronto until two or three in the morning trying to kind of walk it off, trying to process all this stuff. Yeah. And so David Lynch went deep for me. And so like any kind of new film of his coming out was going to be a special occasion. But then Lost Highway, I don't know. I was kind of in a noir at the time. And Lost Highway is definitely his most noirish picture, mm-hmm. which is saying something. And there are certain aspects of it, the kind of Mobius strip flip that I think has subsequently become something of a David Lynch signature because he does the same kind of thing in Mulholland Drive and in Inland Empire. Yeah. But at the time, you know, it was like, I don't want to say recycling, but um, 
bringing back old David Lynch motifs, and there are tons of them in Lost Highway, but also putting them in something new that felt darker and scarier. That was intoxicating to me. So that was, it was for many years my absolute favorite film, favorite film by anybody, and certainly favorite film of David Lynch. Right. I wouldn't say that it is now. Yeah. I feel like I'm able to see some problems with the picture, at least problems for me that I didn't see before. But I can tell you that film left a deep impression on me. Yeah, uh, it did to me as well. Uh, you know, I was a, a diehard Lynch fan by the time this film came out. So I would have been 19, 20. And I had already, I think I'd watched everything he'd made at that point. My introduction to David Lynch came quite early. I think I've told that we're we're recycling. Speaking of recycling, we're we're retelling stories we've told before here. I think in the Garmin Bosey episode we told these stories way at the beginning. Uh, but when I was like eight or nine, there was a time slot on this French TV channel in Canada called Bleu Nuit, where they they would play dirty movies. So. I was a little older. I must have been 11 or 12. And I was staying up to see these dirty movies, <laughs> to watch them late at night. And it, well, of course. I, this was my, like my, do. my weekly challenge was to try to stay up and somehow fool everyone into thinking I was sleeping so I could go sneak down and watch these movies at zero volume. Uh, they were very uh, vanilla. They, they were perfectly safe entertainment for a prepubescent boy. <laughs> uh, but anyways, <laughs> that night they decided to freaking play Blue Velvet. So, <laughs> which is not at safe. eleven or twelve. I think I'm maybe younger. I, I, I might have been nine or ten. I watched uh, the Blue Velvet, and it completely screwed me up. And I didn't know that was David Lynch. It was just this weird movie. I thought it was this obscure B movie uh, yeah. because it was really badly panned and scanned. Like it wasn't very well adapted right. for TV. It was like things were off screen. It was just an awful rendering of it. But later on, I discovered Twin Peaks, and then Fire Walk With Me for me was the one that blew it all open, and then realized that that had been a David Lynch movie, and then went back and watched everything else. So by the time Lost Highway came out, I was just, you know, I was just anticipating it, I was excited about it, and I was not disappointed. It's an amazing piece of film, and you're right, it represents the beginning of a new era for Lynch. And the similarities, of course, between Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive are something, something we could discuss because they're, to me, they're very important. Looking at each film in light of the other gives us a good sense of what these films are about. You know, I'm of two minds about this sort of filmmaking. On the one hand, I'm like, trying to explain it is a waste of time because, and I think that's ultimately true about anything in life. Like at some point, you just have to enjoy the aesthetics of something and just take it as it is and not try to explain it away. But in another sense, I think that there's a deliberate presentation here that is like a puzzle and that it, it is possible to put it together. And I think there is something these films are about. I think it's a cop out to say, oh, it's just surreal and there's no discussing what it's about. That's what I like about Lynch is that he's giving us puzzles. And despite his insistence that there is no answer, I think sometimes there are many answers Yes. And uh, I think that more than one have occurred to him as well, even though he would deny it. Yeah. Um, and, so and I'm sure we're going to get to our pet theories. Absolutely. About yeah. How this film works or what it is. But I should say right off the bat, when I talk about the Mobius strip flip, I'm talking about this in such a way that a David Lynch fan is going to know what I'm talking about. But if you don't know these films, it's probably worth mentioning. Okay. So the flip is this. It's a story about an avant-garde jazz musician named Fred, 
who suspects his wife is cheating on him. And they start receiving a series of ominous anonymous videotapes, at first just showing the exterior of their house, then showing the interior of their house, then showing the interior of their house with them in it, sleeping. Then the final video cassette shows Fred Madison standing over the butchered corpse of his wife. And he is sentenced to death. And while he's on death row, he morphs into a different person. Like his head kind of turns inside out and becomes someone else's head. And that person is a whole separate person named Pete Dayton. And because Pete Dayton has mysteriously somehow ended up in this locked cell instead of Fred Madison, the prison authorities let him go, but they set a couple of cops off to trail him. The second half of the film shows Pete as he is, he's a mechanic who does a lot of work for a gangster named Mr. Eddie. Mr. Eddie has a, a gun mall, a classic film noir femme fatale named Alice. And Alice is played by the very same actress who plays the wife of Fred, Renee. That actress is Patricia Arquette. But whereas Renee is a brunette, Alice is blonde. Classic film noir the blonde versus brunette thing is something you can find. Like It's an old thing, and David Lynch has used it in more than one movie. He uses it in Mulholland Drive as well. He uses it yeah. in Twin Peaks in Twin when Peaks, Maddie right. comes back as played by Cheryl yeah. Lee, yeah, right. same person who plays Laura Palmer. But I wanted to get back to what I meant by Mo Mobius Strip Flip. The very first shot of the film after the credit sequence, which is dope and which we should talk about as well, shows Fred Madison smoking a cigarette in his severely modernist Bauhausy kind of house. Clearly impersonating David Lynch. Yes. The way he smokes in that, yeah. And by the way, the house that Fred and Renee live in was one of the houses that David Lynch actually owned. Yeah, he owned two houses adjacent to one another, like two adjacent properties. Yes, and one of them he used as the set for this film. But the very first thing we see is Fred Madison smoking a cigarette. Fred hears a buzz on his intercom. He goes over, presses the button, and he hears a voice saying, Dick Laurent is dead. And we have no context for this remark, and neither apparently does Fred, who looks puzzled, looks out the window, sees nothing. And then the film begins. And then at the end of the film, after Pete Dayton has turned back into Fred Madison, and Fred has killed Mr. Eddie... Shit has gotten complicated. He is being followed by those cops, and the cops are moving in on him, but he has one last thing to do, and he pulls up at his own house, presses the intercom button, and whispers into it, Dick Laurent is dead. At which point, the cops start to chase him, and the last thing we see of the film, prior to the end credits, is Fred roaring down the highway in this souped-up Mercedes screaming with like a whole battalion of police cars following him and uh, screaming and his head beginning to bulge and transform again. And so the Mobius strip thing is simply that the thing that starts the film is also the thing that ends the film. 
Yeah. But the guy who was on the inside of the house at the beginning is the guy on the outside of the house at the end. Yeah. You see what I mean? Yes. It's like a Mobius strip, like a strip of paper that you turn over and then you join the ends together. So you end up now with a toroid shape where you can run your finger around the entire surface of it, inside and out. There is only a single surface. Yeah, exactly. And there's no point at which you could say exactly, oh, this is where it flips, it turns upside down. Kind of time loop, really, that yeah. circles in on itself. Finnegan's Wake style, you know, famously, uh, James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake ends with the beginning of the sentence that starts the novel. So the novel is uh, a circle. It repeats itself. That's the clearest example of that in Lynch. It's not as clear in Mulholland Drive. It doesn't do that, but there is a similar time loop business going on. He's fucking with chronology in both films. Like the whole first half of Lost Highway, it's not always clear when things are happening, how much time has passed between two scenes. It's almost like the characters are in a kind of dream punctuated by hiatuses, as they used to call them in dreams. Like when you have a hiatus in a dream, it's when you're suddenly, you were there and all of a sudden you're here. And sometimes you're a different person in the dream and you're doing this thing. And there's no real clear causal connection between the two elements in the sequence. And you get that sense, even though it's not that that's going on in the first half of Lost Highway, the way it's composed and the way it's edited makes you feel like you're already in a kind of like loop. The uniformity of the house, you have to see this house. It's like a very modern house. The walls are all the same color. It's kind of been a very monotone kind of environment. And the two characters, Fred and Renee, seem to just exist in this space in this kind of the very oniric way. They, they're almost like yeah. ghosts haunting their own house and they, they hardly communicate. And so you're already in this kind of broken time, this kind of dream time from the beginning. The film starts super surreal, even though the events aren't as um, spectacularly surreal as they become later on. In the beginning, you're already in this kind of dream space. This film never, you're never in normal mode in this movie. Um, right. It's not like Twin Peaks where there's some kind of footing somewhere in re at least Twin Peaks season one uh, and two. You can find your footing in there, even though ultimately you're getting tricked because the more you watch Twin Peaks, the more surreal the mundane scenes become. But in this movie, you're just thrown into a very dark place. To, to me, the film is a vision of hell in a way. But I would qualify that by saying it's hell as a purgative process. It's more like a vision of purgatory. Both Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive, at least from one perspective, are perfect instantiations of that line from The Course of the Heart that we brought up when we did the show, you are never merely yourself. Lost Highway is all about this character, Fred, and his inner struggle, his inner contradictions. And at least that's one way of reading it. I mean, it's a psychological way of reading it, but I think it bears fruit. It's a very rewarding way of reading it. And then... Uh, Mulholland Drive is basically the same film, but told from a female perspective. It's about a woman's psyche. And um, just to go back to the first act of Lost Highway, you have this guy, Fred, he's a musician. He's a saxophone player who's obviously got a lot of pent up anger and frustration. Um, you can hear that when you see him performing at the club and he's just going on this monstrous, crazy atonal kind of solo. So Fred's a musician. He lives with this woman, Renee, this beautiful woman whom he realizes he doesn't know. And I think that's one of the yeah. central themes of 
a lot of David Lynch's work, but especially I think Mulholland Drive and Lost Highway. These are films about the impossibility of knowing the people you would expect to know best. In other words, Fred is with Renee. Renee's his wife. He should know who she is. And in the day to day, we all act as though our spouses and our maybe our siblings and the people who are closest to us are the people who are most knowable to us. But in fact, because of the nature of reality, you'll never get to the core of someone else. There's an absolute difference between yourself and the other. And so there's an infinite kind of distanciation that happens as you try to get closer and closer and try to understand this person. The more you try, the less you do. So he's in that situation here and he realizes he doesn't know who his wife is. He suspects that she has a very kind of like um, dark past. Some of her friends he doesn't trust. He's wondering what she did before they met, what she's not telling him, whether she's having an affair. And it's inserted this rift between himself and his wife. There's a scene, one of the most horrific scenes in film, where he makes love to his wife. My interpretation of that scene is that he ends early. He's done. He's like, after a couple of minutes, he's finished and he just collapses on his wife. And his wife responds by patting him on the back and saying, it's okay. It's okay. And that just drives him over. You could just see him. All of a sudden, he is Loser. disgusted with himself, with his wife. He just has to roll over. He just feels completely humiliated, imagining his wife with this past, this kind of like adventurous, promiscuous other life that he suspects she's living and him being so inadequate in their house and just so... Um, to me, that's the moment where he starts to move towards the murder, right? And it's shortly after that that they get the first videotape. Yes, it is. Right. Which is important. Which is really is important. important. So that's a kind of like Zizekian take on this film, or Lacanian, I guess, is that Lacan says that the real capital R for Lacan is, I mean, one, one way that it's been defined by Alain Badiou, it's the, I think he says, it's the aporia of all formalization. The real is the point at which you realize that you cannot formalize reality ultimately, that reality will always elude all of your concepts. So that means that you can't know anything fully, which means that even the things you think you know best, your wife, yourself, you cannot know fully because all these things are in reality and reality is ultimately impenetrable to your formalizing mind. So the moment of horror in Lacanian psychology is the moment where the things that are dearest and closest to you reveal their intrinsic unknowability and reveal themselves as kind of voids. The other becomes a void. There's no way to get through the barrier that you thought you had somehow pierced by knowing or loving this person. And so the way you could interpret the film in that sense would be that the first part of the movie is Fred being so negatively affected by that aporia, by that inability to know his wife that he loves and depends on, but then he, he's, he feels threatened by her because he's, she's so mysterious and so unknowable. He kills her. And then in the second half, it would be this kind of like fantasy. And that's, I'm using that word, but I, I don't mean fantasy in like fake or hallucination. I mean, like he creates this other version of his life, of his existence, where he's a totally different person with the same woman, but with a different name, different hair, and a different personality. Whereas Renee was very reserved and introverted, 
the blonde version, Alice, is very kind of promiscuous and, and extroverted. She's kind of like the person that Fred feared his wife really was when he wasn't around. And in this other world, first of all, everything goes super well because he's externalized all the conflicts. His inner conflict, the obstacle, as Zizek says, that prevented him from reaching his wife in the real world, in the fantasy world, takes the form of Mr. Eddie, this gangster that stands between him and the woman he wants. And his name is Dick because he's the phallus, right? He's the, the hmm. phallus that stands between the object of desire and the, the protagonist in the kind of drama of psychoanalysis. So he should point out, by yeah. the way, that he's called Mr. Eddie and he's called Dick Laurent. Interchangeably, are, yeah. Interchangeably. And it's that's part of the dream logic, the Mobius strip logic of this film, that all these characters have doubles. Yes. Uh, but unlike, unlike Pete slash Fred... Mr. Eddie slash Dick Laurent is played by the same actor yeah. and is clearly the same guy, a gangster. So in the dream, he externalizes the phallus instead of being something that's in him. It's something that's outside. It stands in the way. And it's only when he he must kill Dick Laurent. He must kill the big other, as Zizek or Lacan would say. He must kill the phallus, castrate the father in order to then realize that Ultimately, this is all happening inside him and kind of come to terms with it. And he also has to learn that he will never know his wife, which is why at the end, in the final scene of Pete's arc, he's making love to Alice and he keeps saying, I want you, I want you, I want you. And then when they're finished, she just leans in and says in his ear, you will never have me. Basically, you will never possess the object of desire. Then she walks away and then he's back to being Fred again. He's thrown back into reality. And so I don't think it's necessarily wrong to see these films as not more didactic, but at least less quote unquote surreal than they appear. And I'm, I'll be the first to admit that the end of the film would ex nay any purely psychological interpretation of what this film's about, because it's a film also about metaphysics and about the nature of the real and about time and about space and all that. But um, that's an interpretation that I think once I saw it, it made sense of the film in a good way, right, for me. Mm.
Let's talk about the mystery man. We've met before, haven't we? <laughs> Come on, play along. I can't remember what he says. I don't think so. Where, uh, I don't Where think so. you think we've met? Where is it you think we've met, right? At your house, don't you remember? I can't remember what he says. <laughs> uh, I can recite that whole scene from memory. You could probably recite I, the whole film after seeing it countless times. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. And I have seen that scene countless times. Okay, so this is actually a point that David Foster Wallace makes in his very well-known essay from a collection called A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again. The essay is titled David Lynch Keeps His Head. One of the things that David Foster Wallace leans pretty hard on is the idea that Lynch is essentially an expressionistic director. Mm -hmm. So whether or not we buy the basically Freudian or Lacanian interpretation that you just bust out on this film, which is a cool interpretation. It's not exactly how I think of the film, but it's not not how I think of the film, I guess I would say. It's a big tent, Never, this film. It's a big tent. Yeah, exactly. Nevertheless, this is a film that cries out for Freudian readings, as indeed all of Lynch's films do, with the possible exception of like the straight story, just because it is so deeply involved in plumbing the depths of an individual human psyche. Not human beings generally, right? Not, you know, human nature, but going down in a bathosphere deep, deep, deep into the deepest undersea trenches of an individual character's psyche and dredging up all these dream images that don't necessarily cohere into a, what we might call a story or a plot, but that nevertheless are deeply evocative of an inner state. And it's this sort of like focus on the inner state, almost to the exclusion of the outer state, or at least to the point where inner and outer become completely blurred. Right. It becomes impossible yeah. to tell what's like an inner occurrence and what's actually in the so-called objective reality. In the way we were discussing when we uh, did uh, The Course of the Heart. Exactly. Like right. In that sense. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's classic expressionistic shit. And Lynch is totally going there in this one scene with a character who is only known as the mystery man. He's not called anything in the film. Uh, nobody addresses him by any kind of name. Played by Robert Blake, best known as TV's Beretta from the 70s cop show. Yeah. And this is a classic bit of weird Lynch directing where he finds this completely forgotten actor and has them appear almost unrecognizably in this small but extremely strange and telling role. But in any event, what happens is, and this is in the first act where Fred is having these deepening concerns about his wife, like wondering who she really is and wondering if she is cheating on him and blah, blah, blah. And those videotapes have started showing up at his house. And he can't make head or tail of them. So in the midst of this, they go to a party. And the party's thrown in the Hollywood Hills by this total sleazeball named Andy, who's a friend of Renee's. And at the party, Renee is like sloppy, falling down drunk, and is clearly like kind of hanging on Andy and treating Fred as a, like a kind of a servant, just like, go get us some drinks. And... Bill Pullman's basic impassivity as an actor really 
works in a context like this because he doesn't react. He's sort of stolid, but you can tell it is just killing him on the inside that he is consumed by rage. He goes over to the bar, gets two shots of whiskey and immediately just downs them himself heaves a sigh, turns around and sees this strange character with a death white face, no eyebrows. Dressed in black. Yeah, dressed in black, hair slicked back and unnaturally bright, intelligent and malevolent eyes. A face almost like a kabuki mask. Yeah. And this character is standing over across the room and his eyes lock on Fred. And you can tell Fred sort of like, avoids this guy's gaze, but this guy keeps locking onto Fred and is walking slowly towards him. And as he's walking towards him, like, okay, we're in a party and there's this great kind of like lounge music that Angelo Badalamenti composed for this film. There's a couple of really good lounge cues in this film, which as a fan of mid-century lounge music, that pleased me. But as he approaches Fred, the diegetic music sound just fades away. The sound of chatter as well. Just everything sound fades. Sound of chatter. Everything fades out. It's almost like that romantic cliche like you see in West Side Story where Tony and Maria see each other for the first time across a crowded dance floor. And suddenly the, the strident Latin jazz and the whirling dancers, all of it fades to nothing and they only see one another. Mm-hmm. This other person is the only person in the reality. It's kind of like that, only instead of love, what we feel here is fear. Right. Before he opens his mouth, we're scared of the mystery man. Yeah. And in this very controlled and modulated voice, the mystery man begins this strange conversation. We've met before, haven't we? I don't think so. Where was it you think we met? At your house, don't you remember? No, no, I don't. Are you sure? Of course. As a matter of fact, I'm there right now. What do you mean you're where right now? At your house. That's fucking crazy, man. I actually analyzed this scene just in terms of its auditory mise-en-scene for one of the music history podcasts that I put out on the Patreon. I think it's the one where I talk about Pandereski. It's about sound masses. David Lynch loves sound masses, like menacing drones or sort of volumes of unpitched or vaguely pitched sound, much of it low end. And he likes to modulate these sound masses and kind of move between them in zones of greater or lesser density. And throughout the scene, like I said, that lounge party music has been filtered out completely. And what we have instead are these atmospheric sound masses. And as the scene becomes weirder and weirder, the sound masses become more oppressive, more present. And they it's almost like a bass drop in like a fucking, you know, techno dance 
track except minus the dance part. It's a very effective audio means of giving us this feeling that reality is dropping out beneath our feet and we are pitching headlong into the abyss. At this point, the mystery man hands Fred a wonderfully mid-90s vintage cell phone. It was about the size of a brick. In a leather in a leather like case. Holster. Yeah, holster. Yeah. Yeah. Call me. Dial your number. Go ahead. I told you I was here. How'd you do that? Ask me. How'd you get inside my house? You invited me. It is not my custom to go where I'm not wanted. Who are you? He actually belts out a, a classic villainous laugh. <laughs> Almost kind of cliche, actually right on the cliche. And you're hearing the same effect that they do in movies where they, you have a villainous laugh as you'll double up the voice. You'll have two tracks going on at the same time to make the, the Oh, the I voice. didn't know they did that. But they do it, but they do it for the first time in film history. He justifies it because you're hearing the guy on the <laughs> oh, phone laugh awesome. at the same time as the real person. So you're getting the classic villain effect, but it's totally justified because there's two of them talking at the same time. Who are you? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Give me back my phone. So what did you make of that scene? This is clearly a moment where the film is jumping the rails. It's going somewhere quite other than we might have expected. Yes, it is. What I love about Lynch is that he's using figures that we've seen before, but decontextualizing them by putting them in context where we wouldn't expect to see them. So the man in black is hardly a Lynchian innovation. This character Robert Blake plays is the devil, right? It's almost like literally a kind of demon who must be invited. It's got all the folklore trappings. I would say something like, if I had to put a name to it, that this character is Fred's shadow, right? Fred's dark side, the repressed, the return of the repressed. He's coming out. He's been invited because his rage and his frustration and humiliation have reached a point where he is beginning to contemplate taking drastic measures to eliminate the source of his fear and frustration, namely his wife. And so the figure enters his life at that point, having been invited. And the arc that the mystery man kind of plays out over the film is very interesting because he begins as a demonic, satanic, Luciferian figure, and in the end ends up And being... as an adversary, too. He torments Pete Dayton, threatens Pete right. terrifyingly in the second half of the film. But in the very end, becomes an ally when it comes to right. castrating the father or whatever you want to call That's that right. scene. So he hands, he hands Fred the knife, the knife that Fred uses to cut... Dick yeah. Laurent's throat, which if we're thinking about this as an image of symbolic castration, it's a pretty good one. 
pretty right on. You know? Yeah. And there's a line too in, in the song, the David Bowie song, because the film opens with this wonderful credit sequence where it's basically a highway at night through the California desert. The camera is riding in the very center of the highway. So it's not in either lane. It's just right over the line. The film is sped up. So you're moving at a tremendous speed over this dark highway. Um, and so all you can see is the yellow broken line flashing very rapidly under the bouncing headlights of the car plunging into darkness. You see nothing but just a little bit of road ahead of you. Right. And over that, you get a beautiful song, a David Bowie song written for the film, produced by Trent Reznor, who did a lot of work on the soundtrack of this film. Yeah, true. And uh, from Nine Inch Nails. And the song is called Deranged. And one of the last lines of the song is... The rain sets in. It's the angel man. I'm deranged. So for yeah. me, it's the angel man tells us something about the mystery man. I've always linked that line from the David Bowie song at the beginning, even the first time, because I, I really love that. It's the angel man. It sounds so strange, it's like something a child would say that would freak you out. The angel man came last night, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, it's and then, true. And then I saw that was in my mind when I saw the mystery man, as I was watching the film, I I kept going back to that line and the idea of demons as angels of purification, right? As, right. as beings that come in to force you to face the things you can't face, that, mm -hmm. that grab you by the hair and just fucking jam your face right into the mud and the shit. They're, they're angels from the left-hand pillar of the tree of life. Yeah, the dark Buddhas, right? The monstrous yes. Buddhas that the Tibetans say you encounter on the other side. They're uh, from Gevura, from Judgment. Right. And they're just meeting out justice. They're meeting out what you must and have asked to go through. They're giving you that process. So in a sense, I see the mystery man as that sort of agent who comes in to accomplish what must be accomplished if Fred is to transcend or at least finish what has begun, like to go through the process. I like to imagine that actually if you were to see the next scene of the film at the very end. So one Fred rides off into the dark highway, but then the Fred that hears it this time won't repeat what happened. That somehow mm. the, the film oh, at the I end saying. manages to solve the problem by externalizing the blockage, killing it, realizing that it's inside and then coming back and like the character announces to himself, there is no big other. Dick Laurent is dead is that famous line from Jejectomy. There is no big other. There is nothing judging you other than yourself. Get over it. Transcend the, the judgment and be at peace with the world and with who you are. But we'll never know if that's what happens next because the film ends there. Now, I read this in a YouTube comment. So let's say that the provenance of this fact is questionable. But I read that actually that David Bowie song, Deranged, had been written and recorded before Lynch started work on Lost Highway. Uh, they were friends, and Bowie, according to this YouTube commenter, Bowie played this song to Lynch, and Lynch just immediately imagined that opening scene of a car blazing into the night, and that that image just basically was the start of the film for him. Right. That and, makes sense. And actually, whichever version is true, it doesn't make a ton of difference, because I think that there's a something essential to the way Lynch makes his films, and this is elaborately documented in a lot of different sources, that he will just find random things 
and of course, if you are living in a kind of magical narrative, there's no such thing as random things. Everything is there for some kind of reason. You may not know what the reason is, but in the magical narrative, everything you encounter has some kind of significance. Mm -hmm. And he treats everything that happens to him in the course of thinking up, shooting, and releasing a film as integral to the process of making the film. So it's not like he's going to sit down, like I would imagine David Mamet, for example, would sit down, draw a script, and then have his actors very carefully execute an extremely detailed shooting script. Lynch is constantly incorporating accident yeah, and even misadventure. I'll just throw in a perfect example of that. Uh, the character of Bob from Twin Peaks from what I've heard, and I think I saw this in an actual documentary where Lynch was part of it. The character of Bob started off as they were doing some, they were test shooting on the set. And the actor who plays Bob was a set Frank carpenter. Silva. Yeah, he was a, a, a set carpenter who was just trying to hide so that he wouldn't be in the shot, but was in the shot. He was just hiding there in the corner. And when Lynch saw this carpenter hiding, crouched in the corner of the set, he's like, that's it. We have to cast that guy. He's he's Bob. I don't know if he said he's Bob or I have to find a role for this. But he saw this accident and immediately incorporated it into the project. Not only incorporated it, but made it a kind of central element. Like the, whole the whole Twin project. Peaks mythos flows from that one accident. Yeah, right. And the accident happened when they were already shooting Twin Peaks. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. So he he's able to, he's always cut the, he's sending probes out and always sensitive to whatever might happen next so that he can, he himself can find out what he's doing. It's like he has this crazy um, yeah. agnostic or like uh, kind of naive approach to making films where he, he's like, I don't even know what this is about. We'll find out together. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. And so it could have, it, it could be that he had a conversation with David Bowie. It's like, I want you to put a line in about an angel man. <laughs> exactly. Uh, or you could imagine that he heard the line in the already completed song and it stuck in his head and then he created the mystery man from that one elusive line. Right. Or it could be that he didn't even hear the line. He wasn't even paying attention to the lyrics. And yet there's a synchronicity between these two things. I love your observation, the angel man. That's awesome. And it almost doesn't matter because that's how he makes a film. He makes a film like a magician. Yeah. In conjuring signs and then following those signs to new signs and allowing those signs to make their own kind of coherence. Yeah. It's a strange sort of stage magic where the trick is whatever happens next. You know? Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. Fantastic. The trick is whatever happens next. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's a number of moments in Lost Highway that are like that include one of the funny scenes. I mean, there's always comedy in Lynch. And there's a scene where Mr. Eddie, Pete Dayton is his sort of personal mechanic and he's gotten Pete to fix some kind of problem with the engine. And he's like, let's go for a drive. And they're driving through the, uh, I guess it's Mulholland Drive or supposed to be Mulholland Drive. And there's some asshole who's tailgating them and then passes them and flips them off. And Mr. Eddie gets really pissed, rams the car, pushes it off the road, pistol whips the guy, and at gunpoint forces him to promise that he will get a driver's manual, study it, and learn about the proper number of car lengths right. that you need to maintain stopping distance at 35 miles per... 35 fucking miles per hour! Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a it's great because here we get an insight into the character of Mr. Reddy slash Dick Laurent, right? They're the same character, but he's weird. The character kind of like walks this line in between, I guess you'd say the law, capital L, and um, the ultimate transgression, right? And again, to go back to Lacanian psychology, a lot of Lacan's insights are actually kind of simple when you translate them into language hum- languages humans can speak is that the law creates the crime. So there's this weird syzygy between a law and the crime that it creates. So on the one hand, Mr. Eddie is this gangster, but another way, he's the one, he's the, the upstanding law-abiding citizen. He's the most law, he's, yes, he is, the, he is a lawgiver and lawbringer in this film. Which is exactly what the phallus, the phallic father, the big, the, the father figure is in Freudian psychology. He's the, he gives, he, he sets the law, but he's also the one who commits the crime, who wants to yeah. kill the son. So yeah. it's like this nice kind of weird ambivalence that you see there in that scene. Lacan um, has this sort of pun in French on uh, le nom de père, the, the name of the father. He says, le nom de père, the no of the father. Yeah, exactly. Le nom de père, the name of the father. Le nom de père, N-O-N, the no of the father. Yeah, it's yeah. fucking brilliant. And that totally applies here. Exactly. But the thing is, though, that the reason that shot is in the film is because that exact thing happened to David Lynch, not long before they shot the film. And he also just wanted to put a scene in where he just gets to beat the shit out of this guy who flipped him off on the highway. (laughs) Yeah. No better reason than that. It just happened to him and it really made him mad. And he decided that he would just do a scene where Mr. Eddie would pistol whip this motherfucker. Well, there it is. And that doesn't lessen the meaning of that scene one little bit. Exactly. It doesn't make any difference. So, I mean, we could talk here about what Lynch tells us about how reality and the psyche work because if you could trust in accidents to that degree, ultimately, I believe David Lynch when he says that he doesn't analyze his own films and he doesn't yeah. have some kind of didactic point he's trying to make. I think that he's being honest when he describes his process. And yet the film gives us these crystalline truths like that are in all their ambiguity and ambivalence. Well, that's a, a real truth is only if it's clear, it'll be ambivalent and, and ambiguous, right? It won't fall on one side of an issue. It will give us the whole question, the whole issue and present it to us in a way that we both understand it and see the limits of our understanding. Maybe that's a good definition of truth. I don't know. But the idea that he could just be pissed about this tailgater, decide almost arbitrarily to put that in this film just to vent a bit so he can like vicariously beat the shit out of that tailgater through his actor. The fact that that could happen in a purely accidental way and yet could have all this depth when Slavoj Žižek turns his gaze to it is amazing. It tells us something about the, you know, that another line from the Course of the Heart episode we just did, there is no escape from inside the meaning of things. Right. The more you abide by um, Brian Eno's line there, uh, was it perceive your, your mistake? Honor, honor thy mistake as a hidden intention. Honor thy mistake as a hidden intention. The more we live by that, the more we don't need to project meaning. The more meaning yes. reveals itself to us. Exactly. The more the great plan, which is not a plan in the sense that people who are hankering after meaning see it. It's a, the great plan is something that's 
just like I said about truth earlier, is something that is both ambivalent and ambiguous and ultimately unknowable. Nevertheless, there's some kind of plan, some kind of order to things where if you just perform a magic show where you just tell yourself going in, the trick is whatever happens next, what happens next will be magic every time. Hmm. One way that I have of looking at these films is a little bit more issuing the kind of exegesis, the kind of interpretation of psychology and motivation. Yeah. Uh, that you were interpretation, which I find very convincing. I'm in that tend, mood today is all. <laughs> just in that kind of a mood. Yeah. Uh, I, I have my own theories about like particular plot mechanisms. So, okay, one that I came up with actually on this last go round, watching this film again a couple nights ago, something I never really paid attention to before is like when we're in the Pete reality in the second half of the film. So Pete comes home from jail and he's all kinds of dazed and confused. And there's actually a gorgeous scene. You were saying that this is a film that takes place in hell or at least purgatory. There's one scene of heaven to me in this, which is when Pete is just lounging on a plastic folding chair in his backyard, just recovering, just sort of looking around almost like a newborn trying to take stock of all these things around him, like things in the neighbor's yard, like a ball, a sprinkler, uh, a little kiddie pool with a ball and a and a little sailboat in it. Yeah, you know, just kind of back objects. to that. Yeah, and the way Lynch shoots them, and he has this extraordinary ability to set off in photography objects in such a way as to make you feel like you were seeing them for the very first time. There's a kind of freshness and vividness to them that you get sort of feeling that 
Pete is having to stitch his reality back together. And he is seeing these things as if like a newborn baby. And that is a, it, it is so unutterably beautiful. And also is helped by the uh, Tom Jobim track. I forgot what the title of it is playing right. in the background. It's almost like a girl um, from Ipanema type of track, their little lounge loungy jazz kind of stuff, isn't it? Yeah, except it's not the girl from Ipanema. No, it's not. It's that style. Yeah, it's yeah. yeah, it's a bossa nova jazz, and particularly Joe Beam's version of it, which is just has this very particular flavor that I love. Anyway, but as Pete sort of is getting his shit back together and reassembling bits and pieces of his life, remembering like who his friends are and so on, there's clearly something missing, and his girlfriend Sheila keeps saying like you're different or you've changed something's off about you Mm -hmm. and his parents who he lives with keep sort of like looking at him sidelong and whispering between themselves and there's clearly something they keep talking about that night and there's a brief flashback where you see something like you know half remembered flashback and there's like a flashing light like um like lightning and uh, an image of his parents running towards him and Sheila yelling something, but it's very indistinct. Yeah. Yeah, And, um, and we never find out what that night was. You assume it has something to do with like when he disappears and reappears on that death row cell that formerly occupied by Fred, but no one is telling him anything. And he keeps saying like, what's going on? Like, Oh, there's a terrifying scene where his parents, sit him down at night in the living room and are like the police yeah. called today. They wanted to know if, if you remembered, if you remembered anything. anything about that, about the other night. And he's like, I don't, what happened? And his parents won't tell him. He says, you, you came here, you were with a man. We'd never seen this man before. You know that scene? And then he's like, tell me what happened. And then his dad just starts crying and yeah. shaking his head. Gary Busey. Yeah. Gary Busey playing, just killing it in that part. And yeah. uh, that scene just freaked me out when I first saw it. I was like, oh my God, that is so horrific. That is so terrible that everyone around you knows something about you, but they can't tell you. It's too terrible to tell you because you blessedly don't remember. Can you imagine? Yes. yes. <laughs> and do you wonder what is it? And I have a theory that I came up with. Like for the longest time, the first 19 or 20 times I saw this film, I'm like, yeah, it's just Lynch fucking with you. Because it's always possible that Lynch is doing something that's mysterious, that doesn't quite add up, just because it feels cool and creepy right. and it doesn't add up. And he's not that conscientious about coming up with diegetic explanations for things like how the same guy can be on two sides of his intercom at the same time. Like he's not interested in explaining that kind of thing. That's your job, right? Right. And so sometimes, and you said this at the beginning, that it's easy to slip into this thing. I'm like, oh, it's just Lynch being Lynch doesn't mean anything. Just dig it. And I agree with you. I find that unsatisfying because among other things, it just ends up being a kind of hermeneutic get out of jail free card. Right. It's like something that mediocre undergraduate student papers do where you're asking them to explain something they're like i don't know just random i guess yeah yeah exactly and it's a get out of jail free card and it's uh it's a way of just being right without doing anything exactly it's very 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 twitter-esque way of approaching things (laughs) it is it totally is but i kind of did that for a long time with that whole little thing of like you know the mysterious thing that happened to pete same here but but then last night I was reminded of a book called Last Call, which is a great 
science fiction-ish, actually more fantasy novel by Tim Powers, who was a friend of Philip K. Dix and actually was one of the, um, appears as one of the friends of Horse Lover Fat in the novel Vallis. Oh, wow. Didn't know that. Yeah. Tim Powers, a fine writer in yes, his own. Yes, he is. Right. And Last Call is a super novel. It's about a guy who is like a Vegas accountant or something, but a black magician also, who's figured out a way to gain immortality. And it's a complicated setup involving a rare tarot deck and a game called Assumption. But that when he finds a mark, he tricks this mark into playing this game with him. And he rigs the game in such a way that you give your soul to him through this card game. And then after a certain period of time, your soul will be sucked out of your body and be replaced by his soul. And so this guy is actually really old, but he's been transmigrating from one body to another for years using this card game as a way of wearing people's body like a new suit. So his old body's all worn up, worn out and fucked up and in a retirement home somewhere. But this guy is young and healthy because he keeps taking over people's bodies. And I was like, what if something like that happened? Like, okay, it's not likely, but it's a thought that there is some kind of magical operation that the mystery man is assisting Fred in. There's some, I don't know, Faustian bargain that Fred has made to, as you say, to castrate the father, to remove that blockage or whatever, and also to have an opportunity to have this do-over, to get it right, to kill Mr. Eddie slash Dick Laurent instead of his wife. I like that idea. But then I like the idea that in order to do that, there is some kind of occult operation that has to happen whereby some stooge, a mook, is going to be chosen, an unremarkable person, to be assumed in this way. The Pete thinks he's Pete, but he's actually Fred. Yeah. Everybody around him saw it happen, saw some transformation whereby Pete actually died or is Pete is gone. His soul is gone at least. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what everybody knows. And that's why his father's crying because he knows his son is already gone, even as he's talking to him and he can't bear to tell his son you're actually gone look, already. Look, that's brilliant. And you know what? All that it would take for this movie to move from the whatever category David Lynch films are, the surreal category, let's say, into the fantastic or science fiction or horror category is to add one scene where uh, the mystery man sits down with Fred and says, there is a way to resolve all this. I can send you into the body of someone whose life maps on to your inner situation. And you can, if you can solve that guy's problem, then you will be free in this life or something like that. And I will something do this, like that, yeah. this ritual to make it happen. That's exactly what happens. I mean, one of the few interviews I've read with David Lynch about Lost Highway, I read this back when it came out. He goes on and on about, he's doing what Kubrick would do when asked about the movie, which is talk about something else that's tangentially related to the film. He went on about psychogenic fugues, Right which are uh, fugues that this happens. You'll have someone who suddenly believes they are someone else and like actually move into a different city and live out a different life or wander aimlessly for days thinking they're somebody completely different. 
And he's like, this is a movie about a psychogenic fugue. But of course it's not because <laughs> there's that switch in the cell. It makes no sense. But to look at it that way, that the mystery man went and fetched the soul of this random stooge, gave it to Fred and actually transformed his body into that of the stooge of Peter. The whole movie makes a lot of sense now, you know, yeah. like it's, it's yeah. kind of like none of this is just in imagined or happening in a dream world. It's all actually happening. And it makes sense of the end, which is where the Freudian interpretation fails, because at the end, you go back to reality, you have the detectives investigating the crime. Fred is an escaped convict. And we have the other character involved, too. At the end of the film, it's like all this has actually been happening. And and so, yeah, to look at it that way, just everything falls into place. Right. That being said, one of the things I love about David Lynch is no matter how clever your explanation is, and I feel like our explanation is is clever. I think it helps. But uh, and I think there are explanations of, for example, a very similar thing that happens in Mulholland Drive, where the same character played by oh, what's that actress? That's, name? That one's Wonder easier to me, anyways. Yeah, yeah. The first half is the dream, and then you come to reality. And the second later. half is the reality. Yeah. Um, but. Even there, there's always a remainder. Any single frame of reference you can come up with, like a plot or a diegetic sort of frame you can use to explain what's happening in the film will leave a remainder. There's always a surplus, and I like that about it. Absolutely. So so it's like it's like kind of telling you, like, don't get too comfortable. Like, you have to interpret this film. I believe that not interpreting this film is basically to fail the task that Lynch sets for you. You have to interpret like a good Lacanian. Not that either of us is Lacanian, but in the, the sense that... The furthest thing from a Lacanian. Well, no, but the, the kind of poplicon is your knowledge of, of anything will never be exhaustive. You will never yes. exhaust your knowledge of anything. And therefore, you will never fully interpret a work of art. So any yeah. work of art that is a true example of its uh, of its genre or whatever will be ultimately impossible to fully interpret and yet to not interpret is the cop out you must interpret yes you must say yes. something yeah yes um, well and as usual this reminds me of zen shit the thing that i've said a million times there's nothing to say and yet you must say something right and also the form of the enso the zen circle you know what I'm talking about? Like that's yes. like a, yeah. the closest thing to a symbol, sort of like the cross for Christians. The closest thing of a similar sort of symbol for Zen Buddhists is an enso, which is a circle with a little break in it. Sometimes people will draw the circle as a completely closed circle, which is, of course, an image of unity. And it's like the image of unity that we form in the, the mudra, making this little circle with our hands when we sit in Zazen. But the classic move in drawing an enso is to leave a little break in the circle. A rift. Yeah. Yes, because there's always a rift, because that's a statement about reality, that reality is not a seamless whole. There is always a break. There's always something left over. Yeah. I like formalist interpretations, partly because I love abstract instrumental music so much. And with abstract instrumental music, no text, no story, you are just left with the pure formal arrangement of tones to convey meaning. And one reason why I think I have always been so deeply attracted to Lynch's films is because they have that condition of music where a lot of their meaningfulness is kind of not a semiotic or like propositional utterance kind of meaning, but a meaningfulness like, um, like uh, that Manuel Delanda sort of system of like um, 
significant, ins- yeah. significant but insignificative. Yeah, not signifying anything in particular, but being highly significant. Music is that blend of things. I've argued that synchronicity gives us that kind of signature of meaningfulness, and. I feel like you get that all the time in Lynch. There are so many beautifully set up formal shots, especially in the first half. For yeah, example, the composition is, uh, is through the roof in that, especially oh, yeah. in the first and, one. Yeah. And part. it's just like, why does this composition look the way it does? As you say, it often serves a sense of character and story like as you very aptly said, Fred and Rene are like ghosts floating around their own house, yeah. having these weird conversations full of strange silences. It's almost like conversations you have in dreams. It's also placing the character. Composition is essential because it's that's your tool for placing the characters in a space where they don't just right. exist as floating, talking heads, but are elements of a universe, elements of a world, which, as we mentioned last time, is very important to Lynch, the sense of place. And I would say in those scenes, like when they're in the bedroom together, when they're in the living room together, watching the videotapes, he is really putting them in a composition. Like the composition overwhelms the the figures, the people. They are completely assimilated to composition. And that has an expressive consequence. It aids in that feeling of like that dreamlike and very disturbing feeling of that first part of the film. It also tells us something about how these characters have everything kind of squared away, like everything is in its place. Everything is so formalized and controlled that uh, there's no, it's a closed circle without a rift. The first, you know, they're living in that kind of closed environment. But the thing is that it also, I think, discloses a sense like there is a level of meaning in any given part of Lynch's films where the meaning is visual and musical. It is not in what people are saying or what they're doing. And, for example, in the rather brief bit where Fred is in prison. We see him in the prison yard and he collapses because he has blistering headaches, which presage his transformation into Pete. But the scene where he's leaning up against a wall seemingly for a long time and slowly crumples to the ground is a beautiful composition. And it looks actually, it's very reminiscent, compositionally speaking, to the look of that house with its severe slit-like windows in an abstract arrangement of horizontal and vertical lines. Right. And even the color scheme is like this beige kind of sandstone color. Yes. Yeah. And the scene of him leaning up against a wall in the prison yard has the same highly formal quality where Fred becomes an element in this composition. And the composition, okay, the meaning of the scene is clear. It's presaging his transformation. But the meaning of the scene also just comes from the sheer abstract deployment of forms, of colors and forms and movement. And to me, that aspect of form also plays out on the largest level of the film, which is that Mobius strip flip. You can say, what accounts for that? And we can come up with, I think, pretty plausible reasons for not exactly how it works temporally, because of course it turns time into something nonlinear, which is hard for us to wrap our heads around. But we can come up with and have come up with, I think, decent arguments for why that happens as part of the this maybe devil's bargain or this right. um, or this quest or whatever. But I also think that that Mobius strip flip is a form, a pure, beautiful form. 
an abstract form, and there's something about that all on its own, regardless of what it can mean in the plot, that also is one reason why it's there in the film. And so I have a kind of a formalism where it's not quite saying, oh, it's all random, doesn't mean anything, which I agree is barbarous philistinism. But it is saying that it doesn't mean anything in the sense it's insignificative. It yes. has this insignificant side, but it is highly significant in the same way that a prelude and fugue of Bach is significant, but abstract. Right. No, I totally agree. I would say or add that it's not an either or situation. Um, exactly. Every great work of art has a formal dimension, which is precisely the level at which you see the inexhaustibility of its possible interpretations. It's by going back to that formal base that you see that, first of all, that's where you get new interpretations, because ultimately you could argue that even the dialogue in a film has a formalist quality. Even the meaning of the words in the film, the meaning of the plot itself, you could interpret that formalistically, as many have done. Everything can be formalized, and it's at the formal level where you see the pure aesthetic shape of things. That's the wellspring you return to, to then interpret and bring new interpretations in. And ultimately, we have to ask ourselves, what the hell the, is the point of all this interpreting? Well, I think the point is that each of us in our lives is trying to work out some specific set of problems or perhaps an infinite list of problems. And art is a tool for helping us do that. And in a way, you could see, this is another interpretation of the film, you could see the whole Peter chapter of the film, the whole fantasy, let's call it, that Fred concocts in order to work out his shit. That whole part is a perfect example of how the artist externalizes themselves into outer exterior forms, into forms that can be touched and manipulated in order to work on their own problems. And the beauty of art is that it then, because it results in a work that can be shared, it allows us to use that work and also benefit from it and work on our own problems. We don't interpret in order to be right. We interpret in order to know who we are. And just as interpretations are infinite, that process never ends either. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.